Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. Good morning. Today we finished the book of James. We did it. We made it through a book of the Bible without taking an entire year to do it. The book of James has been all about how to live as a Christian in very practical ways. It gives us just a lot of practical instruction as to what, that, what that's supposed to look like. But knowing the right thing to do isn't enough. This is Paul's frustration in another chapter of the Bible, Romans chapter 7, where he says he knows the right things to do, but he just he can't do the right thing consistently all the time. Um, someone said that the law or God's commandments or God's law tells us how to live, but it doesn't give us the power to live that way. And so even though we've been learning all these practical, important ways of what it looks like, how do we live as a Christian in God's kingdom here on earth, we're still missing part of the equation. Just knowing isn't enough. So let's throw up this little special thanks to Kellen Roth, who took my last-minute slides and was able to magically get them ready for you. So um, this is what we're missing in the equation. If we think of it as like a, as a math equation, biblical knowledge, which is essential and important for followers of Jesus, so we know how to live and how we have the power to live that way, plus Holy Spirit-empowered blank equals life transformation. So there's, there is this missing link between understanding what the Bible says and having the ability and the power to actually live that way. It's, it's a heinous teaching of religiosity just to tell people, here's how you live. Here's what you're supposed to do. And then get angry at them when they don't live that way. It's not how we are designed to change and to grow. There's a peace between those two things, between knowing and doing, that is vital. So let's go to the next slide here. It is, and this is your first fill in the blank, if you didn't get sermon notes, we have an usher in the back who's ready to give those to you so you can just raise your hand. Biblical knowledge plus Holy Spirit-empowered formation practices equals life transformation. So the link between knowing what the Bible says and being able to consistently live in the way the Bible says is Holy Spirit-empowered formation practices. We can define formation practices this way. There are ways that we intentionally open ourselves to receive from God. Ways that we intentionally open ourselves to receive from God. So it's, it's your typical. Do you guys, what are some formation practices? Do you guys have any ideas? What's some just typical Christian formation practices? Prayer. Prayer is a big one. Yes. What else? Meditation. Absolutely. Meditation specifically on Scripture, so reading the Bible is an important one. Uh, the elders practice once a week, we each um, fast from two consecutive meals. That's a tough one, and they're probably not happy that I just told everybody that, because you're supposed to do those things in secret. Whatever. It's good. 
It's good to do. It's good for us because it tells us that our body is not in control. So we depend upon God in new ways. We pray in new ways as we're fasting. These are all Holy Spirit-empowered formation practices. You don't do formation practices because you're super spiritual. You do formation practices because you want to become super spiritual. So if you're doing formation practices, it's certainly not something to brag about. It's, a, it's, it's just evidence that we're weak. So today, before we dig into James, I want to bring your attention back yet again to one of those vital formation practices that are often overlooked. And that is... Solitude and silence. Solitude and silence create space in our lives for contemplation and reflection. Paul, when he was talking to another guy in the Bible called Timothy, a younger guy who was a younger pastor, and Paul was getting towards the end of his life, and he wrote a final uh, letter to Timothy. He was probably his final letter called 2 Timothy. And in it, he tells Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2.7, he says, Think over what I say, and the Lord will give you understanding. In other words, spend some time reflecting on the things that I've taught you about. And as you reflect on those things, there's like this synergistic partnership between your act of thinking and the Holy Spirit that actually teaches you new things about God. It requires space, though, quiet, solitude, silence. I can personally tell when I've fallen behind in my solitude and silence because my reading of Scripture gets very shallow, less interesting, and it's not the Bible that's less interesting. The Bible is not boring. People are boring. So when I, when I think the Bible is less interested, that's more of a commentary on me than what the Bible is saying. Another things, the thing that happens when I fall behind in solitude and silence is that my prayers lose their life. It feels less like a meaningful conversation and more like an act of duty or obligation. And the third thing that happens is my spiritual momentum in life just begins to stall out. The way we grow in maturity, the way we grow in spiritual power is that as life is happening to us, we create these pockets of solitude so that the Spirit can use what we're learning from Scripture to comfort us and to encourage us, to transform us, to teach us. And what I've learned in 23 years of pastoral ministry is if two people read the same amount of Bible, let's say two people commit to going through the entire Bible in one year, if those two people commit to the same amount of Bible reading and one of them, in addition to that, commits to regular spaces of solitude and silence in their lives, the one, they will both grow in their understanding of scripture, for sure. They will both grow spiritually, for sure. The one who exercises solitude and silence regularly will way far outpace the maturing and the transformation than the one who doesn't. It just showed itself over and over and over these 23 years of walking with people and discipling people and being discipled by people. And... Also, it was a regular pattern in Jesus' life. Matthew 14, Jesus finds out that his friend, and somehow probably a cousin, somehow related to him, John the Baptist, was killed. And what does Jesus do? Immediately, 
He finds a boat, and he rows to a solitary place, a desolate place, and he's alone on the water with the Father, being consoled, being strengthened. Solitude, silence. He rows to shore, and there's a large crowd waiting for him, and his disciples are there. He heals a lot of their sicknesses. He does this crazy miracle where he takes just a a handful of food and feeds thousands and thousands of people. He tells the disciples to get in the boat and go to the other side as he dismisses the crowd. And then what does he do after that? He goes up into the mountains to be alone with the Father. If I don't regularly practice the things that Jesus regularly practiced, like in this case, solitude and silence, what I'm saying is I am a more capable person than Jesus. I'm saying I'm, chim- I'm simply choosing not to follow that example, that pattern of Jesus. Jesus might have needed to take solitude, evidently, according to the gospel. He might have needed that, but I don't. And the second thing that I'm communicating when I get out of this habit of solitude and silence is that having spiritual power just isn't a priority for me. I knew a lot of Bible before I started taking regular times of solitude almost seven years ago, but the Bible didn't become alive to me in a transformative way, in a way that actually was, that created a a more vibrant and alive and joyful and powerful life until I practiced solitude regularly. Nothing else can transfer biblical knowledge to a transformed life like the space that you create to be alone with God in solitude. And it came down to a simple choice for me. Was my version of Christianity, in my version of Christianity, was the goal more biblical knowledge or was the goal abiding deeply in Christ? And if the second is the goal, then it requires solitude and silence. It requires us following the pattern of Jesus. Why am I hammering down on this? Because, one, as we're finishing James, I don't want you to think that, like I said at the beginning, merely knowing what the Bible says is enough, um, is enough power and force to give you the, the chops to actually live that way consistently. It requires these formation practices. And two, because we're just about done with our autumn prayer. And I'm not going to ask how many people are still praying the autumn prayer because I trust that every single person in this room is just still waking up at four in the morning, reading through the autumn prayer. You have it memorized by now, and it's just producing powerful results in your life. I do know that some of you are still, in fact, reading it. I'm still reading it regularly, and it's done some important things in my life. And we're wrapping that up the end of November, and we're starting a new practice. We're not, it's not going to be a prayer. It's going to be a practice. So every season, we're going to have a new practice where we're putting ourselves in the way of God's grace. So the winter season is coming up, and we're going to practice something new, and that is going to involve solitude and silence. It's going to involve you playing with ways to begin experimenting with that, creating space in your life for God to begin to heal you, to begin to transform you. And we'll, we'll give you easy ways to do this, and if you've been practicing this for a while, we'll give you some more advanced ways. All right. Let's get into the passage. James 5, 13 through 20, follow along in your Bibles. It's also up here behind me. It's also in your sermon notes. You ready? This is the last little bit of James. It's 
It's a, it's a little bit different passage. I'm going to teach it a little bit different right way. So fasten your safety belts. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We could teach a semester-long class on this passage, and we would not be able to touch even a fraction of all of the implications of this passage. It's something that it would be worth spending significant time studying and thinking about on your own, what I'm going to do today is tease out six implications that are just scratching the surface of just parts of this passage. There is way more in here that I'm going to be able to cover today, and I don't want to keep you here until tomorrow, so we're just going to touch on six things, and I'm going to warn you, I'm going to warn you that this is actually going to raise more questions for you than it answers, I think. Because sometimes questions or sometimes answers are intended to do that. It's intended to drive us back to Scripture and begin to wrestle with things that if I told you right now, you wouldn't be able to immediately accept and believe it. You almost, there's some things that you have to discover in Scripture through your own exploration. So I am priming the pump for you to explore this a little bit more. And I, I promise you, we're going to land in different spots as a church. We're going to land in different places with some of these things because we're getting into some interesting topics. So the first thing, the first implication is that in every circumstance we face, the proper response is to use it as a prompt to turn afresh to God in conversational prayer. This is an easy one. Nobody, if you disagree with this, then I'm not even, I don't know what to say. This is an easy one. Our life is intended to be about ongoing relational conversation with a heavenly father who is crazy about you, who loves you for no good reason, who could not, be, could not love you more, could not be more impressed by you. He loves you because love is what comes out of him. He loves you because love is what he is. And he desires conversational, conversational, intimate prayer life with you constantly. He wants you to talk with him about everything you're facing. Everything in life is a cue for us to turn to God in conversation. Verse 13 is, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise, which is prayer with a melody. 
Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. In all of life's circumstances, the proper response is prayer, whether on your own or in community. Now, that was an easy one. Nobody's, nobody has any disagreements with this so far. Are we all, we're all on the same page. Nobody's ready to walk out on me. Nobody's disagreeing. Nobody's writing down, I need to email Greg about that and set an appointment. We're all good so far. Okay, you will by the end of this. Here's the second one. Let's read verse 14 through 16. Is anyone among you sick? Okay, this is getting juicy. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. By the way, if you desire for this prayer, if you desire for the elders or people in the shepherd team to come pray for you, by all means, info at southsideworcester.com. Email us that you would like either if there's a request that you want us praying about or if you want us to come to your house or some of us to come to your house or me to come to your house, please let us know and we will definitely arrange that. That's something that we are supposed to do as elders and overseers of a church. Verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Is James actually saying that if someone is physically sick, if someone is physically ill, that that sickness can be healed through prayer? There's a lot of people that have a lot of opinions on this topic. And a lot of people will say, think of this in an allegorical way where they'll, they'll say, um, you know, he, he's talking just about spiritual healing because he connects it with forgiveness. So he's talking about spiritual healing and nothing more. We should not expect anything beyond spiritual healing. You have to do some pretty sophisticated gymnastics to say that that is the case. To say that Jesus doesn't, in fact, still heal people and heal physical ailments, physical sicknesses, and things like that. You, I don't think biblically we can say that. I think we have to say he still does that. So we need a category for that in our theology, but there are a couple things we need to keep in mind. We need to be very careful here. Here's what we need to keep in mind. It's number two. Miraculous movements of God, like physical healings, are intended to give a foundation to our faith rather than a model for our expectations. You're going to have to think about this one for a little while. They're meant to give a foundation to our faith rather than a model for our expectations. Miracles remind us that God is bigger than anything we'll face. Miracles remind us that God can handle whatever life throws at us. But they don't imply that we should expect the same miraculous intervention in every circumstance. So if we see someone in the Bible who was healed in this way, it doesn't imply that we should expect God to do the very same thing for us now. Now, there is a lot more to be said about this. And I'm happy to meet 
one-on-one or in a small group or whatever to unpack this a little bit. I don't have time for it now. But that's where I stand on on this situation. Uh, I want to read you this quote. When we think of the miraculous acts of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is from Alec Motyer's The Message of James. When we think of the miraculous acts of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that they are recorded so that we may trust him. Not so that we may know what in every parallel or similar circumstance we may immediately expect from him. So if a bad guy is chasing you and you come up to a big lake, you shouldn't expect that God's going to split the waters for you to run through it like he did for Moses and the Israelites. That's a silly, that's a silly exaggerated example to, to make a point that we can't expect miraculous intervention every time we ask for it. When it happens, it serves to strengthen our trust in God, to renew our sense of his power. And as we learn to trust in God, we're enabled to rest in him. However he chooses to answer our prayers, we're able to say, this is what I desire, but I restfully, peacefully accept your will. You see things that I can't see. Jesus taught this in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So not mine, thy. Jesus modeled this in Gethsemane. If there's any other way I can do this besides hanging on a cross for the sins of the world, besides being, having you turn your back on me so that you can turn and face everybody in the world because they're forgiven in me, if there's any other way I can do this besides the cross, please let me know. If there's any other way, that, if there's a different cup that I can drink of your wrath, let me know. And, and then he said, But nonetheless, not my will, but yours be done. That is the appropriate prayer. Theologically, we know that Scripture teaches clearly that miracles, these supernatural occurrences in the Bible, they they happen, they cluster around important moments in salvation history. It's like God like putting a highlight. This is a really important moment. These are really important people that I've given power to do ministry, I'm putting a highlight on it. I'm putting an exclamation point on it to show you that it's me working. And those exclamation points, those highlights, are miracles. They cluster around important moments in redemptive history. Scripture tells us this very plainly. I'll just go, I'm going to read these really quickly. 2 Corinthians 12.12 says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Highlight it. These are really my true apostles. I'm showing you they are by these signs and wonders. Hebrews 2, 3 through 4. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. How did God bear witness to the watching world that these were legitimately from God. What did he do? Oh, come on. What did we do? We're going to become an interactive church. You guys are going to be yelling amen as I'm up here talking. All right. What did God do to show that this is me working? Signs and wonders. All right. So we got a lot of introverted people. Where are the extroverts? Somebody say, all right, whoever's an extroverted person, What did God do to put a highlight in Scripture, in important moments of salvation history, that this is him acting? Signs and wonders. I knew E. Price would get me there. Signs and wonders. 
exclamation point, this is me. Pay attention. Acts 14, 3. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Important moments in salvation history are highlighted in Scripture by signs and wonders. Do miracles still happen today? Certainly. Yes. Should we expect miraculous intervention in every circumstance? No. But when it happens, it's a sign that God is in this. He is always in this. Even when we don't see the miracles, when we do, it just reminds us. So let's go to number three and let's unpack for a moment what when God does choose to intervene miraculously how does that happen your point number three God at times provides a surge of bold faith as we are praying for others Um, there's a there's a true story a pastor I forget which one, one of the guys that's on the radio. And he's telling the story of they, he was planning, he'd been planning this like stadium. Man, it is so hard. It is so hard right now for the ADHD just to just stay tame, just stay right there. Don't go, don't go looking around. Don't go, don't be embarrassed if that's you. It's okay. It happens to everybody. I'm just saying, I'm struggling. Pray for me here. This could be, this would be miraculous if I'm able to focus. So this, this lady this, this lady is um, praying with these pastors, and they've been planning this, like, big stadium outreach. And they're going to share the gospel with all these people. And as they're praying beforehand, they look out, and they see these very dark clouds coming towards them, coming towards the stadium. Like, the heavy clouds. Like, it's storm clouds. And they see just the wall. You know when you can see the wall of rain just falling, falling and it's, like, coming at you. You're, you're bracing yourself for it. They saw it, and the pastors all prayed, Lord, you know, if it's your will for us just to get soaked, I pray that people will stay here. I pray that the equipment will still work, or you'll give us wisdom to know how to handle this. And you know, they were praying along those lines. And then this, this older grandmotherly figure said, God, we spent a lot of money on this, and we invited a lot of people. That stadium is going to be full. Do you want them to hear the gospel or not? Don't let it rain in our stadium. And the pastor was like, we were shocked as we watched this thick, dense wall of clouds and rain coming at us and just split a seam around the stadium and went around us and we not a drop fell in the stadium. Do miracles happen still today? Yes. Would have been right for those pastors to pray the way the, the, the lady did? No, because they didn't have, God didn't give them this surge of boldness. He gave it to her. In that moment, for that season, for that reason, only a few times in my life have I had that type of surge of God-given boldness to ask for something miraculous. Only a few times. I've had the privilege of praying with people in moments of their lives in which they are in dire circumstances. And I can always tell 
what theological tribe the people in that room are from when I'm praying. If I'm in the hospital with someone who's sick and I don't sense God giving me freedom or this surge of boldness to pray boldly for immediate healing or something like that. And I just pray for acceptance that God... um, What do you want to teach this dear person in this? Empower them. Cause your grace to be sufficient for whatever they're facing. Use this to mature them. Use this as an example for other people to see what it looks like to be facing something scary but to not be afraid of it. Like When I pray those ways, I know my charismatic friends in the room because they flinch at that. They're like, you've got to pray bold. We're praying for complete healing now. If God so plants that much faith in you, then by all means do it. He hasn't done that for me in this moment, in this situation. And I, I won't. I will not. Because that's me trying to muster up faith instead of receiving faith, which we'll get to in a minute. At other times, I have had a very strong sense of, and this is just being in tune with what the Spirit of God is doing. I have had a very strong sense of, You need to pray boldly about something right now, and I will act. That has just happened less than a handful of times. But when I've done that, God has responded. But when I'm praying that, I can tell my friends in the room who are more of like a Reformed tradition of theology, because they're like, you can't pray for healing like that. You can't pray that boldness. You're praying for acceptance, acquiescence to the will of God. And I'm like... Pray that. That's great. God, for some reason in this situation, gave me a little bit extra intensity and boldness and clarity, and that was how I was supposed to pray. Here's how you do this. The key to praying in these circumstances is to not care who is in the room or how they'll respond, but for each person to pray as they sense the Spirit is leading them to pray. For goodness sake, of all things... Do not use prayer as an opportunity to create a hierarchy, to be judgmental against a way that someone else is praying. And for me, I'm getting more and more careful about not praying rashly without considering how God would want me to pray in that situation. It's just the season of learning that I'm in. So some people, it's a good practice. And, you know, if if you ask some people in this room to pray for you after service, their, their response is to immediately pray with you right there in the moment. That's great. That is a, that's where they're at. That's the season of prayer that they are in. That's their conviction. They need to do that. For me, it's not helpful in this season. If you ask me to pray for you, I will. I probably won't do it in the moment. I will probably ask you a lot of questions about what's happening, and then I will ask Jesus, how do you want me to pray for this person? And I will. And I'm not saying everybody should do that, but if you feel, if that resonates with you, then you now have vocabulary to explain why you do that. Number four, like everything else, faith is a gift from God. Not something we can pridefully muster up in our own strength. 
And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Verse 15. Faith, like everything else, is something that only God can give us. There is nothing about genuine Christianity that at any time ever can say with a straight face, look what I can do. Look how pure my faith is. Look how strong my faith is. That is a thinly veiled attempt to elevate one's self over others and draw people's attention to my sufficiency rather than Christ. It's self-aggrandizing. It's straight from hell. We can't do that because even faith, especially faith, is something that is given to us by God. Romans 12.3 For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. God doles out a measure of faith for each of us. We didn't create it. We didn't work really hard to make it pure without any doubt. You aren't strong enough to build your faith. You hear the word and it brings faith into your life, but only the amount of faith that God has assigned to you. That is so clear in Scripture. Romans 12.3 is a great example of that teaching in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 4.7 is another place we can look to for, for who makes you different from anyone else. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Boasting in your amount of faith is like the complete opposite of how you should be responding to it. Amen. Yes! Thank you, Jay. Focus. All right. Um, number five. All right. I will say it, it is true. It is true, though, that we are to muster up our faith, that we are to, like, stir up our faith. Paul alludes that to Timothy, a young pastor again. He says, you know, don't neglect the gift that was given to you, the laying on of hands. Romans 12 connects our amount of faith with the spiritual gifts that God's given us. So all that to say, we do have responsibility to stir up this faith, to breathe life into this faith, to breathe oxygen into the ember of this fire that God has put in us. There are ways to do that. We should do that. Um, there's a multitude of ways to do that. It's our responsibility to stir it up to maximize the faith that God has entrusted to us. Number five, it is certainly not the norm, but Scripture does imply that sometimes sickness is a result of or a warning against sin. Not accidents. Sickness. It is vitally important here Vitally important that we are clear on this, that this is not the norm. I would say 99.9999999, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but percent of the time, this is not the norm. I don't want you looking at someone who's sick or seeing sickness in yourself and just jumping to the assumption that I have an unconfessed sin. I need, that is not true. More than likely, that is not the case. But, 
0.0001% of the time in special circumstances, that does happen. And, by, and the Bible does give us an allowance for this. Um, verse 15, in the prayer of faith that will save, the one who, will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess sins to one another and pray to one another that you may be healed. Natural sicknesses that rise up in us sometimes. There's examples in scriptures of this. I think I, I gave you a couple things uh, Genesis 12, 10 through 20. Genesis 20 is, is in the Old Testament. Um, you, can, you can read about those on your own, but there are situations where sickness is caused by sin, or sickness is a warning against sin. I was in a, a meeting with pastors in Akron. We're sitting around a table, and each of us had different people that we were walking with and counseling and praying with praying for, and one of the guys in the room said, the guy that I've been praying for, the guy that we've been talking about for like the last few months who did the cliche thing of is leaving his wife for a secretary who's half of his age, leaving his family, you know, we've been talking about this guy and he's getting more and more bullheaded about it. He's saying, I'm going to tell her Christmas Eve for goodness sake. I'm telling her Christmas Eve. I'm going to tell the kids I'm going to move out. I'm going to move in with this, my secretary. And um, my friend Paul was just pleading, don't. Don't do that. Don't do that. You can't do that. The night before he was going to tell his wife, he had a massive heart attack and died. She never found out pastor never told her and we wrestled with that that is not the norm but at the end of our conversation we had to say I don't think we can say definitely that it that it wasn't God and that's terrifying that is not the norm six Prayer looks unimpressive. This is a quote from a book that you can see the footnote. Prayer looks unimpressive, and it is easy to despise, but it has great resources waiting to be tapped, a huge potency to release. Um, I'm often asked by people who are homebound for whatever reason, how they might spend their time, or people who are getting older. I had a conversation like this with my dad when, when um, Parkinson's had um, basically what was keeping him at home, uh, and his um, faculties weren't in a place where he's able to go meet with people and, and things like that. And we talked about, you know, you could do the most important thing. You could pray. You, you could have a ministry of prayer. And I know... He did. He prayed for many of you. He prayed for our church. From the comfort of your own bed, from the comfort of your own home, if you are homebound, you can be more active and involved, a more, more of a major player in the kingdom of God than anybody else just by having all this time to pray. I've said this before, and I think uh, I heard it from another pastor that when people ask the silly question, who's the best Christian in the world, um, this pastor said, 
nobody knows who that person is. Because you're thinking of the person who's very activistic, but the person is actually a Christian, sweet, saintly lady in India who's taking care of her dying husband and who sits by his bedside day and night, caring for him and praying. If there is such a thing, you'll meet her one day, but you won't know her now. The people who pray for the church and for the kingdom of God, behind the scenes, constantly, they're the movers and shakers. Not this. This is important. The life of the preaching is in the prayer. I read a quote by Jim Cimbala, who Brooklyn, who um, his wife leads the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. Jim's a pastor in Brooklyn. I've been to the church. Actually, long story short, I brought teenagers there. We got kicked out of the church. I can tell you afterwards. But it's a great church. It's amazing people. And the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, there's something about their music that just lifts your spirit. And Jim Cimbala said, the life of the music is in the prayer. Prayer is God releasing power into his kingdom on earth. And you can be a part of that. We'll end it with this quote by the E.M. Bounds. If you're interested in having more of a zealous prayer life, he wouldn't be the worst person to go to. He says, God shapes the world by prayer. Prayers are deathless. They outlive the lives of those who uttered them. You could pray a prayer right now that if humanity is still here before Jesus comes back in five centuries, the effects of that prayer could still be echoing through time. We have no concept of the power of prayer. It is the most underutilized gift that God has given us. And all of life should be a cue, a prompt, to turn back to God in prayer. So let's pray right now. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.